Welcome to the closed session, how to get paid in Silicon Valley, with your host, Tom Chavez and Vivek Vidya. Welcome, everybody, to Episode 5, Season 3 of The Closed Session. My name is Tom. And I am Vivek. Vivek, here we are again. You know, in the past, we've talked about solution memos and and how we uh, create what we call market message fit. Um, We've talked about co-founder hires. We've talked about the perfectly executed product heist, insertion points and products, product roadmap. Don't you think it's time we talk about customers, finally? Yeah. Yeah, because what's what's company building without customers, right? You know, those pesky customers. Mm-hmm. I've read somewhere, if you don't have customers, then maybe the company doesn't actually work out. That's, yeah, that's how that's how they screw you. you that's how act. they screw you. Yep. I you have that. to find people who can actually catch what you're pitching. Yeah, yeah. Well, so look, let's take it up. We're going to dive deep today into customers. Uh, the early customers versus the later customers. How do you get them? How do you keep them? Which ones do you like? Which ones do you not like as much? And we're going to bring in a special guest. Elvis is is on the Zoom. Yep. And we'll join. This, this, this person is, is a pro, right? He's a stone cold assassin. Knows a lot about customers and revenue and how to do it at this early stage. Uh, so we're looking forward to having him join in a minute. Let's build a little suspense and we'll, we'll tell everybody who it is later. Yep. We don't have to tell them right now. That's right. Just wait. Just wait a minute. We're going to give it to you a little bit you know, later. I've, I've been watch- so impatient. I've been watching a lot of uh, cooking videos, and sometimes these chefs were like, I'm going to tell you a special secret. Right. Ingredient in the recipe, but you have to wait. I'll tell it to you in the end. Well, see, we're copping that move. That's exactly mm-hmm. the suspense we're building with our listeners right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. but uh, early customers. Um, let's talk about okay, you've got a product and by the way, you're not waiting for the product to be finished. You're actually getting things moving. You're having those early exploratory conversations with potential customers. Um, and that's hard, right? That's hard for some people to have these conversations in the abstract mm-hmm. without a product that's already been built because you have to use your words to describe what you're building. And if you show up in those conversations, let's go there because we see a lot of people get stuck and you're mealy-mouthed about the whole mm. thing. You say, hey, well, you know, I'm kind of thinking, you know, we're kind of going to sort of have a thing and mm. it's going to be kind of interesting, kind of cool, but just wait for it. And sorry, we don't have... Well, that's weak cheese. That never works. Yep. Right? You used two of your favorite phrases these days. Already? Weak cheese and mealy-mouthed, both. Boom, Bam. I worked that into almost the same sentence. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm improving. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to show up with weak cheese and just do this kind of dance where you hem and haw and uh, maybe I'll have a thing. You have to plant a stake in the ground. Correct. You have to have conviction. As one of my teachers a long, long time ago, when I was giving one of my little talks in graduate school, with all of my notwithstanding the aforementioned limiting conditions of the yada yada, he pulls me aside like, Chavez, if you don't believe this shit, why should anybody else? Correct. Okay, so, Correct. so you got to show up in those early conversations and make liberal use of what we call the declarative present tense. Yep. You plant a stake, you describe what it is. So you're starting to get, and, and, and it's all, I don't want to say it's make-believe, but it's a very kind of mm, airy conversation, right? We're in high air over here where you're, you're evoking a future, you're describing what's possible, you're describing your product and why, why and how it adds value for them. Customer acquisition, getting those first, I mean, there are thousands and thousands of people, God bless them, who can get, once you have 20 customers, can get you 200 more. Correct. Getting the first customer, the first three customers. Is hard. That's crazy hard. Yep. One thing, I just want to add one thing to your point about putting a stake in the ground and using declarative present tense. I think there are two things that are important over there. One, even if you don't have a product, you have to be able to explain what it is going to do and how it is going to work. And if there are systems within the customer's apparatus that it needs to integrate with, you have to be able to explain how it's going to integrate with those systems, right? That's thing one. The second thing is, yes, you you, you should never be mealy-mouthed and never show up with a weak cheese, but you can't also be promising like the sun, the moon, and the stars. You have to be able to say, like, we do these things, and no, we don't do these things. And these other things 
are part of our conception. We haven't gotten to them yet. We had a conversation, you and I, just like that exactly. three hours ago, mm-hmm. right, for a new mm-hmm. company. Here's, and we show them the demo. Here's what it is now. Mm-hmm. They were interested in a, in a corner point that we don't have. Correct. And and to your point, we have to just be very clear and plain spoken and say, we don't have that. Correct. Really great feedback, right? Yep. You start to enroll them by showing mm-hmm. that you want them to have their fingerprints on what you're mm-hmm. what you're doing. You invite them to be what we call a co-innovator yep. at the super mega early stage. Yep. Some companies like that. Now let's talk about that because there are pioneers, mm-hmm. potentially like the customer we're talking to this morning, where they say, Yeah. You know, in fact we said it on the on the on the Zoom. Some people like cool new shit. Yeah. If you like cool new shit, this is cool new. Maybe we should be talking about this cool new shit together. But a lot of people have this conception of themselves as pioneers. But they're not. But they're not. And we've we've seen those many times in the past. No, and you and and so and it's tough, right? Because all all there is is your good judgment. And yeah. and you're gonna get caught on the rocks and you're gonna get strung out. We've been strung out. I'm thinking of one customer in mm-hmm. particular, right? Mm-hmm. Where in our last project okay, they show up with all this pomp and circumstance and they talk a big game. And then when you get into the guts of an implementation. And the first thing that breaks. The first thing that breaks, wait wait a minute, where's the documentation? Give me 25 pages of documentation yeah. on this particular. Now, well, remember, we talked about co-innovating. That's all out the window. Yep. So, so the only thing you can do is to qualify it and say it plainly, like, and we've learned how to do it, like this morning. They're asking for, they were asking for a pet leopard. We don't have a pet. I can't mm-hmm. can't help you with the pet leopard. Mm-hmm. We do have this thing now. Yeah, and maybe we can talk about a a Siamese cat. Yeah, later. I don't know. Probably not going to get you a pet leopard ever. Ever. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so that's one aspect of these early conversations. I think the other one is just absolute audacity, right? Absolute shamelessness in calling anybody you know who might know somebody who knows somebody who's. Yeah who's in a, your target customer profile. We're going to come back to that, put a thumbtack in it, mm-hmm. we'll come back. But it's just this shameless thing where you just reach out. And I'm, I'm always proud of in an earlier project, I just impetuously decide, you know what? Apple needs what we have. I'm going to write, I, I don't know Steve Jobs, but I bet you if I send an email to steve at apple.com. It will reach him. It might, and it didn't bounce. <laughs> it didn't bounce. And guess what? We, Apple we, became a customer. customer. Yeah. Right? I remember I sent an email to um, Michael at Dell.com. Mm-hmm. And, and it, was, it was weird because I got a response within about 25 minutes from Michael Dell. <laughs> and I, don't, I mean, I sent the email and I see it, it comes, come, it's coming back from Michael at Dell.com. But in a moment, I was just, I thought maybe now I got pranked. No, Michael Dell's not going to respond in 25 minutes to, to my email. email. from Tom Chavez. Right. And, and that's, but that's what happened. So, yeah. so one big chunk of advice is just be ridiculous. You know, ask somebody who knows somebody or just send Steve at Apple or Michael at Dell.com or whatever. Yeah. Just, just, you know, get out there yeah. and, and pedal your wares. Yeah. And I, so the other thing that I think people uh, get caught up on the rocks of is, how are we going to price the product? How much should we charge? So do you think ACV matters at this early, early stage, Tom? It doesn't matter the tiniest bit, mm-hmm. right? We see so many. And I don't think so much in our studio because we just, I hope we're just effective in getting people to stop thinking about that stuff. It's not to say that revenue doesn't matter, but when you don't have a customer yeah, and you're negotiating the last nickel off the table or they're trying to claim the last nickel, Let's just be clear, the value that they provide is, is back to co-innovation, mm-hmm. right? They're going to show up and help you get the kinks out. They're going to make your product stronger, better. Hopefully it's a smart customer. We're going to, again, coming back to the profile here in a minute. It's a smart customer who's actually going to make your product stronger. Yeah, they're going to be pesky and they're going to drive you crazy, right? But the value exchange is so much less about the money. Yep. And more about the insight, the acumen, the fire testing you get from them. And the referenceability. Oh, boom. There if, you go. If you make them successful, and we've seen that so many times in the past, if you make your early customers successful, if you work with them to, to demonstrate to them that their success is your success, then it pays off in spades down the road. And four out of five times... They're naturally 
going to want to put it on blast uh-huh. themselves. Uh-huh. They're going to want to stand by the, at the top of the mountaintop because, let's face it, it redounds to their credit. I mean, they're Correct. the ones who were the geniuses who chose you. Yep. And now it's working. By the way, a lot of careers for people inside larger companies are made based on the acumen they display in ferreting out new technologies and mm-hmm. new companies and using their internal organizational currency to get deals done yeah. like that. We've seen that yeah. happen Correct. several times. Yep. So it's a big win for them. I got to confess, the ones who drive me crazy are the ones where you do end up delivering the sun, the moon, the stars, and a pet leopard, and they still won't go on record. They're rare, yeah. but they happen, right? They happen there, yep. I yep. hate those guys. Yeah, the other, the other like speaking of people you hate, maybe hate's, a too, too, hate's too strong a word, but sometimes you do have companies that are, you know, on, on, on paper, and even in practice to a large degree, innovative companies, but they just punish you with meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. And there you have to be mindful of like the brain rape that occurs. Right. Right. Because they're just, you know, having these meetings so they can extract as much information from you. Amazon used to be famous for that. Yeah. By the way, I don't know if they're still doing a lot of it, but back in the day, they were famous for taking companies out and pawing with them for months and months and months. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, you got to have your antenna up and be aware of what's going on. But we're all around the profile. Let's talk a little bit about the profile of an ideal early customer. So we said that they're a natural born innovator, Innovator. right? They, they, it's not a hazard. It's a feature for them. They Mm -hmm. want the cool new shit. Mm -hmm. Um, I think another thing that, you know, I remember Michael Moore had written his book with the bowling pins and, you know, where you're in a vertical and the first pin falls and then the other ones fall behind it. I remember that idea being sort of the bane of my existence 20 years ago mm. because I think all venture capitalists had read the Crossing the Chasm mm-hmm. book. And look, I subscribe. Once you once you have a reference customer in a segment, right? We've seen this. Lemmings follow and mm-hmm. bowling pins do fall. Mm-hmm. But at that extreme stage zero place, right? It's less, I think, about optimizing for sector product dynamics fit, right? And being much more practical around what I call the anthropological profile, right? Is this a person who's going to stake some of their career on what you're doing? Yeah. Are they going to give you useful advice? Are they a liar? Like, I mean, can you trust them? Yep. Because as you pointed out a minute ago, things are going to fail. Fail, yep. Product's going to wobble. Sometimes the product blows up altogether. Mm Mm-hmm. Remember uh, once when we brought down the entire website of a top five mm-hmm. <laughs> news mm-hmm. site? Ooh, that was bad. That was bad. Um, so bad things do happen. Um, by the way, I do remember that customer fired us, didn't they? They did. Yeah, they fired us. They did. One of our first two, one of our customers, second or second, third. Yeah. Th- two or yeah. three, I don't remember now, but yeah. So customers are going to fire you, and that's part of the rough and tumble of what we do here. But like the anthropological profile, I think, is much more important than, you know, the falling of a bowling pin and the sector dynamics and all the kinds of stuff that a McKinsey consultant would tell you about, you know, whether or not this is a good a good match. Yeah, and I think they also have to be curious. They have to be curious about what you've done and how it relates to their business and what problems it solves for them and and, and everything else. And I think this this part is is sometimes overlooked. You have to connect with them on a human level. Yeah. But, you know, because you're going to be spending so much time with these early customers that that you might as well make it fun, right? So, so connecting right. them on the human level is also very important, according to me. Like it's, uh, I've made, I've had some very good friendships and relationships with these early customers that we've worked with in the past. That's right. It's fun for them. It's good for us. Now, okay, so let's with these kinds of ideas in place. Let's imagine now that you finally locked on one customer, mm-hmm. or maybe two customers. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a low dollar value contract, but it's a bona fide SaaS deal mm-hmm. for in what we do. It's an actual contract. Mm-hmm. Now, strange things start to happen. They start to get persnickety, usually with with good reason. By the way, let's also emphasize the founders sold those yep. early deals. It's not a salesperson, right? That scares us, right? When you see people, oh, I'm going to hire a salesperson to go and sell. No, 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 no. 
the founders are selling those mm-hmm. early deals. Now, when those things start to go awry and things start to slip, we've developed this idea of what we call blueberries and pancakes, mm-hmm. right? Where you have a small team. And let's also make sure we, we underscore, when we say a small team, we mean the company is small. Correct. So the whole company is rallying behind the success Mickey. of a couple Correct. of early customers. Correct. Not a product thing or a sales thing or a customer services support thing. The whole company. And so I've taken to saying, listen, I mean, if, if the customer comes and says, listen, I want you to bring me pancakes with blueberries on the side in the morning on Tuesday at 7.30, that's what we're going to do. Yeah. Wait, and then I remember because it's happened in the past. Well, somebody, well, Tom, what does that have to do with software? They're being unreasonable and they want this and they want that. Like, doesn't matter. We're, whatever the customer, I mean, and this is why people talk about customer centricity. It's happy talk unless and until you're prepared and ready to deliver pancakes yep. and blueberries yep. at 7.30 a.m. in whatever city they happen to live in. Yep. Customer obsession means being really obsessed with making the customer successful. And just like we talk about founders selling, founders are implementing too. You know, you you have to be in the middle of those implementations as founders to know, hey, <coughs> what's going on? What's working? What's not working? What what challenges do we run into? What what really worked? Right. right? So you can't do that. You you can't get that information secondhand. That's right. Uh, you have to be there and get it firsthand as you're going through the process. And those customers are looking for evidence yeah. of that maniacal Correct. commitment. Correct. They're testing you. Correct. And every little moment of truth matters. I remember in one of our earlier projects, there was a customer who, as we were signing, wanted to meet with me in, I remember it was in Atlanta. I fly to the CNN Center in Atlanta. This person comes down from their office. I didn't even meet him in his office. Comes down from his office in Atlanta. And we're in a Starbucks and he just wants to, you know, make shake sure that we're ready to yeah. shake my hand. Yeah. And I remember asking afterwards, like, okay, really? I thought we were going to negotiate something or have a more meaty conversation. Basically, like, nope. I just wanted to see that you would be willing to fly out to Atlanta mm. to a Starbucks and just to see me mm. and tell me that you want this deal. Yes, man, I'm here. <laughs> I want the, you know, we're going to do this deal. So it's pre and post and everything in between, yeah. right? It's, it's all the way through. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about who's talking to customers. And I want to just kind of shed a little more light on that earlier thing we said about the whole company. You've overseen huge teams of software developers and technologists and all the rest. I've said it along the way, like the best salesperson, you know, I've ever seen is, is you, right? The way that, and by the way, isn't it funny? Cause, um, like Ferris Bueller playing clarinet and he proudly turns to the, uh, to the camera as he's honking away and says, never had a single lesson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like that's us. Uh, yeah. to never had a single lesson. What is it about? those early stage selling cycles that, that keeps you coming back for more? Because you've gotten really good at it. What do you like about early stage sales like that? I think I, I, uh, I like the thrill of the game. You know, like the, as Sherlock Holmes said, the game is afoot, <laughs> Watson. You know, so it's, it's, it's kind of like that, right? When, when, you are, when you are in the, in the arena now, meeting with customers and pitching them what you've built or what you're going to build. And uh, the thrill of it is very exciting. Seeing the looks on their faces when you can actually convince them that you'll solve their problem mm-hmm. is huge, right? Yeah. And then for me, the the joy of winning a deal, that's just unmatched. I, I remember one uh, one incident where uh, in, a, in a prior project, we were in, we had flown to London. We had a full day of meetings with this with this customer. They had invited three vendors. After a long selection process, they had whittled it down to three. And uh, I, had, I came back, and our meetings went okay. They weren't like, they were, one, one, was, one was not really good. The others were good. Uh, um, so I came back to my hotel room and uh, I was sitting by myself, and the news came out. Matt called me, and he said, yep, we made it. 
and just that that thing like i had nobody else with me so i just like you know looked in the mirror and mm. just shouted to myself yes we did this right? right so that that joy is 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 what i look for that's not, that's why i keep coming back it is a dopamine producing mm-hmm. addictive little loop isn't it yeah when when you persuade them and then they say yes yeah well okay so so stage wise let's move on now and imagine so we've got 3 to 5 customers you've got the dopamine producing win from those early key customers and you now have to scale things mm-hmm. but wait wait this is the part where people fall into this trough and they say okay i got the early wins now i'm going to leap ahead and i'm going to run the salesforce playbook mm-hmm. i'm going to start putting the numbers to it measuring the ltv to cac and the pipeline coverage and the yadi <laughs> right all of the metrics we use for stage three we insist on no 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 you're not ready yeah you're now proceeding we hope to stage two which is this weird kind of in-between place, right? Because you're sort of carrying yourself like a big boy, but you're still a toddler, right? Let's talk about how do we get through that phase? Because um, one chunk of it, I think, hinges on what what people call the ICP, the ideal customer profile. Defining the customer, okay, now we're starting to call more prospects, more leads, you're standing up a BDR Mm -hmm. uh, or SDR function. You're trying to get some marketing leads through your website or other means. You're going to industry events and so on. So you're trying to define, okay, here's my ideal profile. I find it's important to define that profile and then to also recognize that it's wrong. Yeah. Right? It's the Eisenhower, you know, plan it, my, no plan withstands contact with the enemy, but mm-hmm. I still find planning super useful. Mm-hmm. Same thing applies here have a cons- a clear articulation of who you're going after and why, and then be prepared to revise it yeah. at any moment. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think I think the, the other thing, coming back to your point about people start over-indexing on all the metrics and the Salesforce-like process and whatnot, I think in stage two, you have to start setting the sockets up for measuring these things, right? but not be obsessed by them and not let them overtake you because you will need them in stage three, right? Mm-hmm. And so so, so you don't want to wait to establish the hygiene in stage three. You should do that in stage two so that when stage three starts, you'll hit the ground running, right? So you can you put the frameworking in place so that allows you to track all these metrics. To your point, like when you're starting with BDRs and lead gen and whatnot, right. let's track all those numbers, right? That's right. But don't, don't be victimized by them in stage two. That's right. So to fix ideas with an example, there's marketing generated leads. There's there's SDR, right? What we call, you know, outbound. We have people calling. Mm-hmm. The rate at which we convert those top of funnel leads to, to pipeline accepted leads, from which segments do they come? Mm-hmm partner-led mm-hmm. uh, funnel contributions, events. So you're measuring the throughput mm. and the contribution from every one of these little sources. And you're trying to really over-taxonomize the types of companies Correct. and customers that you see. Not because any of it's necessarily, like you're right about any of it, but the point is to generate enough data to have a credible theory, theory. Exactly. for stage three. Right, so that's why you measure everything there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also important to talk briefly about, you know, this kind of fast test and learn cycle. Yeah. yeah. You want to say something about what we've seen there around, you know, how do you, what's the mindset? What are the methods, right? For getting, for, for turning the crank as you're trying to scale yeah. that part of the operation. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, when you are in stage one, when it's founder-led sales, there isn't that much formalism in say, we said this and so we got the customer. Right. right. In stage two, again, in the spirit of preparing for scale at stage three, you have to put the f- infrastructure in place and the frameworks in place that allow you to test the various kinds of messaging that will result in marketing uh, leads turning into sales accepted, into pipeline leads, uh, et cetera, right? Right. So, Send out an email, the, the BDR send out an email with this kind of content. Did did A work or B work? Right? So that iteration and testing becomes really important 
all over the place. That's whether right. it's on your website, whether it's in the email you send, in the decks you use to make presentations to customers right. all over the place. In a prior podcast, we've called that market message, message fit. fit. Yeah. Right. So there's everyone obsesses with product market fit as we should, but we've also learned, particularly when you're selling, you say a specific thing. There's a turn of phrase. There's a value mm-hmm. point. There's an expression of, of a pain, mm-hmm. right? In a, with a particular tonality. Mm-hmm. And you, and just as you're saying with A, A, B experimentation, this is all data driven. I said this, I got these many meetings Correct. from these kinds of customers within this period of time. Correct. Right. That's how you parameterize success. And that's how you know you're moving from first to second like stage. Second stage. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's no one size fits all. There's no Uber answer. It's, mm-hmm. it's a set of habits, right? In the way that you're able to kind of latch onto and know these particular value points, these expressions of pain, these references from those early customers, Correct. right, are, are, are what's resonating with the ones who, who are behind them and are, and are likely to follow. So it's this very kind of complicated dance. Yeah. And it's, it's tied to market messages. It's tied to the product. To your earlier point, it's tied to relationships. relationships. Yep. And, and the profile of the people that you're finding who are susceptible to your pitch. Yeah. When something goes wrong, right? And we've seen it will. No, our <laughs> stuff never goes wrong. It's always flawless <laughs> and perfect. When stuff goes wrong, um, how do we? How do you respond? What's the mindset? What you know? What are the ways in which you pick up the pieces? The product fails. The customer gets pissed. The customer fires you. We talked about you know. What what what's the? How, how do you react to recover? So, well, let's let's take it. Let's take those one by one, right? Like the product. When you say the product fails, the product can fail in multiple ways, mm-hmm. right? First, you're in the implementation and you made some assumptions when you built the product. And those assumptions are not valid because the customer situation is, or, or infrastructure, ecosystem, whatever, is different from what you had assumed. Mm-hmm. So now, what do you do? you're back to customer obsession. Yep. You work with the customer to figure out what's, how you can adapt your product to work within their environment. So the product fails very specifically, but you, because you're customer obsessed, you turn around and you fix it quickly for the customer. Mm-hmm. And this is where back to our anthropo- anthropological profile of the customer, that, that comes in too. The customer has to be of that mindset as well. Like the, at the first side of breakage, if the customer decides to fire you, well, okay. Now, sometimes that does happen mm-hmm. because the failure of the product, this is the second type of failure. The failure is sometimes catastrophic, mm-hmm. right? Like you gave the example of, yeah, we brought, we brought the website down for, for some hours uh, in, for certain browsers and whatnot. Yeah, that was bad. That shouldn't have happened. Now, and... Our sponsor, uh, the customer, had egg on face. That's right. And so they had no choice. That's fatal. That's fatal. Right. Right. But I, I appreciate your managing the distinction between different types of product failures and things that are frequently presented as product failure that are really just customer process mm-hmm. relationship management failures. Right. We've had moments where a customer makes a move because we're just not courteously persisting. They Correct. hired somebody else or they go with another vendor for something that is that should have been part of our upsell. Yeah. Because we're just kind of loyally, you know, bolting and screwing what they bought into into uh, into place, but without attending to yeah. all of their sort of broader solution needs. Yeah. But, you know, the other thing you asked was, how do you pick up the pieces, mm-hmm. right? And you, throughout the life's, throughout the life cycle of your, of, of your company building journey, right? Your attitude and your mindset always has to be one of, what do I learn from this? So yes, that customer firing us was, was bad, right? But we learned some things from that. It didn't happen again. It sure Because we, we put in the pieces on the product side and the testing side and the deployment side to make sure that we catch whatever issue had, had, had occurred and, and did that issue or problems did not happen again in the future. It's a kind of a macabre thing to say, but you almost need those near extinction level events to focus everyone's attention yeah. on what needs to happen. There's, 
and it sounds like I'm just trying to attach a silver lining to something that is actually just a big gigantic turd. But those are the campfire stories that are told later, right? Yeah. Those are the company building moments that really rally everybody to the cause and get them focused on, on the things that need to happen. Um, it's Bain, quite, is, Bain is instructive. As Benjamin Franklin said, right. indeed. Yeah. Okay, well, listen, I think it's time for us to bring in our, our super awesome Double Life Gonzo guest. Should we do that? Let's do it. Vivek, you want to unveil him? He's a big star. He's a huge star. He's a co-founder and CEO of one of our portfolio companies. Please welcome Matt Kilmartin. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. Through the magic of Zoom and, you know, we're bouncing signals through proxy servers in Belarus and all across the planet. And here you are, but you're not here, but it's like, as if you were here on the Zoom while we're in the studio. I'm just, I'm from Albuquerque, Matt. This stuff dazzles and confuses me. <laughs> he's from Albuquerque. And what he didn't say was, which he also says for our listeners, he's from Albuquerque and he wrote the sh short bus to school. So <laughs> Thank you for you that. complete. That's, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. See, Vivek, you look up in the sky and you see an airplane. Mm -hmm. I look up and I see a giant iron bird. Mm. Totally different. Mm, I know. Perspective. So, Matt, in addition to, be, uh, to being the CEO of Habu, a very successful superset company, was formerly the CRO of, of a prior company called Crux. And, Matt, um, put, use your earmuffs because I don't want you to get a big head and I don't want you to listen to the podcast later when we say it. But arguably the most entrepreneurial sales leader uh, we've ever had a chance to work with. Yep. And that's real, dog. So, so that's why we want to have you here with us today to talk about uh, this, this customer revenue process that you're setting up in an early, early stage of a company. By the way, we should also note that Matt took us from 1 million to 100 million in that last project. So, you know, there's, there's no, and, and it, that breaks all the rules of venture capital because usually you have these pesky VCs sitting in a room saying, okay, well, so-and-so is our, our, you know, one to five person mm. and so-and-so is our five to 15 or five to 20 and then 20 to 50 and so on. Matt proved them all wrong and, and went from, from one to 100. So Matt, it's, it's awesome to get your perspective on these topics. We're kicking around sort of the complexities of, of early stage selling. And since, if you would, let's go all the way back then. Sure. Well, many, you know, many years ago, but then you've also had a similar experience in the last couple of years at Habu. Yep. Tell, tell us a little bit about the mindset of an early sales leader, right? And how does it yeah. change according to those stages that I mentioned? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. Back when I joined Crux, I guess we were two customers. So we at least had a product uh, and had a couple of customers and it was still sub a million. And at Habu, we were sort of pre-revenue. Um, and it's, it's a little bit different, but I'd say the mindset is very similar um, where it's really about sort of meeting people where they are. And um, it, it's not about the numbers. It's, it's, it's really about trying to just establish value with your product, right? And it, it requires, and there's a lot of no's along the way, right? Um, a lot more no's than yeses. And, 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 and really in those early stages when you're trying to figure it out and you don't really know, you can really feel stupid on some of those early sales calls, right? Um, you, you know, because uh, you, you, you're you putting yourself out there, but you kind of know there's something there. But so it takes a perseverance, grit, tenacity, um, and really just... Um, the the the, the um, resolve to 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 keep on keeping on right and I know earlier you guys talked a little bit about um, you know the the profile that the the mindset of a buyer early on some someone who's a partner and a co innovator and and you want to sort of try to identify those things but it, it really is just the willingness to roll up your sleeves it's you know in the early stages it's not about the playbook yet right there's no there's no there's no plays to be written. Right, it's about getting your dirt under your fingernails, doing it yourself, and and putting yourself out there and, and getting those early wins, um, and really start to get validation. Um, so I think one of the things I think, you know, I, I think then as you start to get product market fit, and as you move to sort of validation and pre-scale and scale, I think there's all sort of different phases and different moves along the way. Um, you know, I think that underdog mentality has to stay with you sort of all the way through because you're trying to do something impossible. Um, 
and it requires some different moves as as you scale up. But I think that's a little bit just a perspective in terms of the, the mentality in those in those early paces for sure. So so Matt, we were talking about the early stage sales and and how they're sort of a whole company event. Founders are are leaning in and selling, but everybody's selling. For my money, you know, I'm not sure I've ever seen a sales leader enroll and engage the whole company. I've I've joked about how Matt used to Vivek, you go make cupcakes and serve them up on aisle five at 2.30. Tom, I want you to put on a tutu and dance to my little buttercup at 4.30. Like you just barked orders at the whole company <laughs> impetuously <laughs> and without like, and I loved it because you were never asking permission. Like, no, 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 no. You need, everybody needs to do these things, right? Yeah. Was that, yeah, listen, is, is that just I, I, your I, nature or is that a move that you picked up? And, and well, can no, you say I, more for other early I mean, stage sellers? Well, I think it's a team sport, right? I mean, at the end of the day, I think what, what's been sort of an evolution for me is now I'm, I'm leading other functions sort of outside of sales is, you know, it's engineers get really excited that they've built a really cool feature and to see Disney using it and it driving a ton of value for them, right? And so, you know, I don't think it was, and I think ultimately like you, you, um, you know, and coming up with a product feature that derives a lot of value for for customers is really kind of you know, in building discovering cool new innovative things is something that excites a product person, right? And so, you know, I think for back in terms of this, I think I, I don't think it was me. I think it was sort of all of us, right? There was this mentality that everyone sells, right? And and I think, you know, I've always sort of thought that, you know, revenue is the is is a scoreboard, right? In terms of how you're doing, how you're doing in terms of selling, how you're doing in terms of delivering customer value and retention. Are you building valuable products that people are using, right? And so I don't think it was just me pointing and grunting and you do this, you do this. I think it was more of a instilled in the company that everyone sells. And I think for early stage companies, I think that is a really important thing. And, you know, engineers to be able to get close to the front lines and hear sales calls and hear how people are using the product is incredibly valuable as well. And so um, I think it was more of our our motion. And I think, you know, you covered this a little bit earlier, just early stage customers, they want to hear from the CEO too, right? They want to hear from the CTO. They want to hear from the founders. They need to believe in the vision, right? They need to have, you know, we had something recently come up at Habu where um, a big exec from a, from a soon-to-be customer wanted to meet with us just to make sure we were well capitalized and, you know, they they wanted to invest with us. So I think it's just, and we've done the same thing at Habbo as well. I think it's just the willingness of of everyone to sort of roll up their sleeves, and and I do think, but but part of a selling motion though, Tom. I think what you're asking about is, you know, it, you know, when you're especially especially for an enterprise sale, there's a lot of different stakeholders, and I think getting smart around aligning the different stakeholders on your side to the stakeholders on the buyer side um, is um, an important selling motion to. Um, to 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 embrace, and I think we did a good job at that at the last project for sure, and trying to do it at Habu as well. Yeah, it's interesting, Matt, as you talk about you know engineers getting excited about things that they've built being used by customers and and whatnot. That excitement, I think, is 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 stage agnostic. That excitement continues as the company grows as well, right? So as you think about, uh, or rather, as as I reflect back on on our partnership, uh, a lot of it was tribal in the early stages, right? So how how do you how do you see that evolve across like engineering, product, marketing, and the relationship of those three dep- groups with sales as the company evolves and scales, right? Yeah. What changes, right? Yeah, it's so it's so interesting you say that, Vivek, because we're actually going through a process at Habu right now. You know, we're up to 50 employees, but we're sort of defining our operating rhythm, right? Because those things you could do early on when it was one or two salespeople and maybe six six engineers, it's it's a lot more tribal and a lot more fluid. Now, all of a sudden, there's a lot more people. So you have to establish some work architecture, if you will, and some sort of, you know, operating rhythm to just have information flow more seamlessly throughout the organization and whatnot. And so... um, Listen, I think um, in those early days, I, I, I think it's, um, I think everyone sort of has to learn by doing, right? And mm. I think that, I think a mistake sometimes startups make sometimes is they maybe hire 
a CRO a little too early when they mm. might just need a director of sales or a VP of sales who's a doer who can, you know, hire a couple reps to figure it out together. Right. Um, and then they can sort of figure out what's, then they can sort of, once you have some success, then you can write a, a, a playbook, right? And start to figure out the other functions in terms of dividing and conquering. Do you need sales engineers? Do you need mm. a rev ops person? Do you need an enablement person? Do you need a lead gen person? Right. And so, um, so I think I, I think in terms of like sometimes I think that um, startups maybe scale a little prematurely where they just probably throw too many salespeople things too early when you don't have a playbook figured out and and you just don't know enough to write a playbook right you kind of learn by doing so um, fortunately I think that Habu now sort of we we've got enough customers we're driving driving us value for we're sort of at that that playbook phase um, but I think your question as well was in terms of just like the other functional groups, right? And and at the last project, we were very intentional around sort of cross-functional syncs, yeah. right? Sales, marketing, customer success, you know, sales. Um, and and we're sort of, you know, because you lose sort of that you and me and a few other people rolling our sleeves sort of figuring it out together and you start to um, implement some some work architecture to, to facilitate those those knowledge sharing opportunities. Because um, it, it gets harder, right? Because the reality yeah. is, is, you know, uh, the thing, one of the things we're going through now is a lot of the meeting cadence we had before, it's not going to work with a lot more people now. Um, and so really just trying to get, get those processes in place. And remote makes it hard too, right? Like uh, 100%. Ba- back in the day, you, you know, if, even if we weren't, even if, even if we were spread out across multiple locations, there was still critical, critical mass within each location. Now, you know, there's one person at, in their house all over the country. So setting up those, like, you know, and especially as you're growing, setting up those processes becomes even harder, I'm imagining. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely requiring some some new moves, um, for sure. Especially, you know, the last two industry events we've, we've been at have resulted in these COVID outbreaks, which haven't, which haven't helped, per se. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's... Um, you have to be intentional about it, right? Because yeah, I think right. the thing that's hard for people, especially people that aren't early on, you finish a call, you close your Zoom, and you're like, huh, sitting there feeling like, you know, am I feeling the same way someone else is feeling, you know? Yeah. Right. And so, um, you know, I think we are, are definitely, you know, implementing some things to try to, to try to address some of that. And, and I do think it is important to still try to find opportunities to, to get together as well, like you said. Um, but it's... The world has definitely changed in work, as we know, um, also in, in go-to-market and sales, as we know, um, via all these new new technologies and tools. Um, in some ways, it maybe lets us have a little bit more balance. We're not flying on planes everywhere like like the olden days as much, but uh, it definitely makes collaboration harder, for sure. Very back. hard, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, so, Matt, you, you mentioned the stages and and there are these sort of enduring imperatives that that apply across all stages engineering commitment to customer success as Vivek points out so but there are still particularly in sales i think some some stage specific markers reminds me of you know all the conversation now about are we in a recession economists can only actually call recessions definitively post hoc, you know, after they've mm. already happened, they look back and say, okay, that was the start of the recession. Mm. So it strikes me that, you know, sales, as you move from stage two to stage three, like there's no definitive marker. You kind of look back like, oh, wow, that just got different, didn't it? Mm-hmm. So, so give us some, some commentary or some ideas about yeah. when does it get easier? When do you know that it, that you, you crossed one of those stages? How, yeah. how do we think about um, that? That's a really, it's a really good question. Um, you know, I think if I just think about sequencing stages, right, I talked about just the doing, learning by doing with maybe, you know, the revenue leader, right? Forget the title for a second with one or two other people. Um, I think um, that sort of, you know, as you have product market fit, if you will, right? And, and some customers, like I think that is like a next stage, right? Where you're actually starting to build a sales team and you're starting to build a revenue operation, right? So it's less about just, you know, 
selling and getting those early customers. It's more about, okay, how do we start to think about some work architecture to scale this thing, right? Um, and so, and, and as you start to hire more salespeople, right? And so, you know, it's, some people might do it by um, numbers, right? In terms of that, you know, I, I think it's, I, I, I think as you're starting to get productivity with sort of the, for lack of a better word, sort of the capacity you have, that those are good sort of markers that it's time to even pour more gas in the fire and scale. But, um, you know, if I think back, um, back to the last project, I think, um, you know, I think when you start to get some repeatability around sort of your ideal customer profile, right? So in the last project, it was like media publishers, right? As media entertainment cost companies. And we sort of, that was our, our, who we were going after. We had sort of a very clear list. We had a sort of very core value prop. And I wouldn't say it ever got easy, but like after you get like a Turner and a Meredith and some of these other New York Times, right? You start to have those key reference customers and selling does become a little bit easier, right? And we sort of build a sales team to do that, right? And so, um, and then you build sort of the related infrastructure where you want to have people do lead gen and you want to have people to do enablement and you want to define your selling process and you want to have sort of proper forecast and rev ops, right? And so I think that's um, some of the supporting like um, cast of uh, sort of supporting our, you know groups that you bring in to sort of help this, this sales team. And I wouldn't, it gets easier, but I think it's once you start to have some repeatability, you know, I think that's when you start to scale even more, right? And I know yeah. you talked a little bit about, you know, founder-led sales, and as you're entering an adjacent market, you need to move, you know, you go back to that. And, you know, we had a very, that crux when we sort of moved to sell the market, we had a very similar downshift, right? And then that's we right. sort of had the the playbook for selling to marketers, right? And we scaled that, right? And so... The one thing, you know, I know we've talked about lessons learned and mistakes. Like, I do think you have to design for scale early, though, right? Like, I think you have to think about getting a sales operations partner, right? I think you have to think about enablement. I think you have to think about these work architecture things early, right? Yeah, uh, let's, because... let's really amplify that, right? Because we all spent, I think, too much time, depending on heroic uh, events and contributions from individuals and I think we, we've all really learned that lesson, like invest in enablement and sales operations early, even yep. if it seems like if it's, if it's six months too early, don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, yeah. it'll bear fruit later. And, and, and I think the thing too is, you know, there's like, you know, there's this metaphor out there of someone, of a sales leader being a builder or an architect, right? An architect designs the plan and a builder just sort of goes and builds and does, right? Mm-hmm. The vast majority of revenue leaders are builders, builders right? Yeah. <laughs> um, right? And so those supporting roles can help a builder scale, right? In some ways, you kind of said it like, oh, you were describing the crux journey and what I did in the beginning and kind of the, the run up. Like I'm, you know, I had a lot of really great business partners I worked with to help us define the playbooks, define the methodologies and to help sort of build the the work architecture um, because in those early days it's building, right. But then you got to start to think about architecting uh, a revenue operation. Um, and I think, you know, those, those supporting functions can help flush out white spaces for people too, and help people help people scale for sure. Yeah. Well, Matt, I know we're getting down to time here, but maybe I, I got to ask if, if there's an early stage sales leader, and again, let's not get caught up in our knickers on the title, but somebody who's thinking of, of joining an early stage company in, in, a, in a selling role, what advice would you give them? Um, let's qualify it a little further. They're coming from like a, an established company, a stage three, a stage two, like they, uh, let, let's say it's their first super early stage well, move. Yeah. Well, one of my, one of my things is I, I do think, um, you know, I listened to, I listened to this other podcast, which was actually about sort of revenue leaders journeys. It's a really good one put on by another VC. And, um, there's, there's one recently, I think it was the CRO of box talked about sort of sometimes people who come from some of these larger companies, they're sort of they they sort of were operating the playbook as opposed to writing the playbook, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think they sort of um uh 
you know, think they sort of know all the answers, right? And so I guess my, my advice would be um, for anyone sort of, if you're coming from a larger company, a smaller company, first of all, do it, right? It's a ton of fun and it's really cool to, to, to build something from nothing and, and, and be in the trenches and, and creating a market and whatnot. Second thing, though, I would say is to really um, partner, like know the people you're going to war with, you know, really believe in the, the team and really the product that you're going after, the market opportunity, um, and approach it with some humility, right? I think it's easy to, you know, hey, I wrote the, the playbook at, you know, this company or that big company and to think you can just kind of come and do that at, a, at, a, at, a, at an early stage company and, I think there's nuances to every market and whatnot, and it's it's not you know especially in those early days it's not just sort of wash rinse repeat right. I think as you start to scale, sales becomes a lot more formulaic and it's a lot more numbers and it's pipeline and pipe progression and number of AEs and it's a lot more of a numbers game. But I think for the stages of what we're talking about now, Tom, it's um, it's not as it's not as formulaic. Um, so so my advice would be to do it, approach it with some humility. Um, get get dirt under your fingernails from the right in the beginning, and then start to think about um, scaling and, and building the company more. But um, that would be my advice. Very wise advice. Hey Matt, gotta ask: Are you still sleeping with your cell phone on your chest? <laughs> <laughs> Next to the bed, Tom. Next to the bed. See, wow, that's progress. That is progress. progress. Yeah, yeah. Just in case you wake up at like you know two a.m. and you want to slack, you have an idea, you know. <laughs> How about you? Or in the old days, you know, waiting for a call from the other side of a pl- the planet for a deal that was in play or or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. SoftBank. Nobody, <laughs> nobody could ever accuse you of phoning it in, Matt Kilmartin. Well, listen, this is this is incredibly wise advice. So great to have you um, share it, impart it with us on this podcast. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, everybody. That's going to be a wrap for this episode of The Closed Session. Thanks for being with us. See you next time. 